Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Kim Kreider, who I have known since we were both undergraduates at Duke way back in the day. Kim is a recently retired major general, a two-star general in the U.S. Space Force, and was previously with the U.S. Air Force. Thank you, Kim, for your distinguished 35-year military career, both on active duty and as a reservist. While a reservist, Kim has also had a parallel private sector career for the past 20-plus years she is married and a mother of two adult children. Welcome, Kim. Thank you, JR. It's a real pleasure to be here. Yeah, I appreciate you doing this. This is episode two. So you're one of the early victims of this concoction I've come up with to do a podcast. So thank you. All right. Well, I guess I don't have too big of a bar to hurdle over yet. <laughs> yeah, well, my prior guest said the same thing. I doubt that that's going to be an issue for you. So Anyway, let's jump right into it. So you and I were both Air Force ROTC at Duke. When did you first decide that you wanted to go into the military and do the ROTC route? When I was applying to colleges. Yeah. That was pretty much it. I didn't come from a military background. I mean, my dad was in the Army briefly, but it wasn't like a significant part of my growing up was any real familiarity with the military. And so when I was applying for colleges... I was growing up in Florida, and I thought I wanted to venture out of Florida and try something different and new, and ROTC was a great option for me to get a scholarship and go to Duke. Duke was just a fabulous university. I knew nothing about ROTC. I knew nothing about the Air Force going into that arrangement, but it worked out. It sure did. I'm very similar in that I really hadn't even thought about it until my father proposed it and kind of went through the process and one thing led to another. And next thing I knew, I was in Air Force ROTC with you. So you were an electrical engineering major. How did you pick that as your course of study? Well, I've always been interested in any kind of science or math kind of a degree. Engineering was not something that I knew a lot about coming out of high school, but I took an affinity to it particularly because, you know, I enjoy thinking about how things work. Electrical engineering was always kind of interesting to me because you really got down to the nitty gritty (laughs) of how a lot of things work. And so I I found that very interesting. And I enjoyed the classes. I enjoyed the labs. I enjoyed really just putting things together and testing theories and figuring out designs and figuring out that you could actually create something by putting a bunch of principles together. Yeah, very true. What did you do when you left Duke, had your first Air Force assignment? Where'd you go? What was your role as a brand new second lieutenant? Yeah, so when I left Duke, I really thought that I was just going to do the four years of RTC commitment was four years on active duty. 
And my first assignment was at Hanscom Air Force Base in Massachusetts. I'd never been that far north. I instantly fell in love with New England. So that was a real treat because just being in the Four Seasons and experiencing things that I'd never experienced growing up in Florida was really neat for me. I made a lot of great friends right off the bat. I was in acquisition. So my first jobs involved the purchasing of the acquiring, the design, and the delivery of large-scale systems for different parts of the Air Force. Now, what was interesting about my first assignment was that there were many, many young lieutenants and captains assigned to the same base that I was at. So it was almost like we had our own little culture club. We had great bosses. They gave us a lot of responsibility early on. Some of the friends that I still have now that I had my whole career, I met those first few years at Hanscom. In fact, the day that I arrived at Hanscom is the day that I met my husband, the man that would become my husband. It was a really a great six years, it turned out. The fact that I had so much responsibility foisted upon me so quickly, I was in charge of $25 million programs right off the bat. I was running teams of 20 to 30 people, most of whom were twice my age, had twice my years of experience. And so I learned about leadership early on. I was excited about the fact that bosses put a lot of trust in me and were willing to give me opportunities to excel and prove myself. And that really caused me to think about the Air Force as a career. I was really hooked in that I had a lot of ability to make a difference. And that inspired me. That's awesome. So six years at Hanscom, which is actually a relatively long time to be in one place Mm -hmm. when you're in the military. Where did you go after that? Yes, six years at Hanscom. And then I did a couple of years as an ROTC instructor at MIT, right down the street. I've always been interested in higher education. I've always been interested in teaching. And I followed that passion in various ways throughout my career as well. So I raised my hand early on and said I wanted to be an ROTC instructor. So I went down to MIT. We had students from MIT and Harvard and Tufts. These kids were super bright. And I was just a young captain at the time. I was living in Boston, taking classes at Harvard and teaching classes at MIT. I was just having a ball. After a couple of years of that, I made a big decision at that point because My husband was getting ready to PCS to Hawaii. We weren't quite yet married yet, but we decided we were going to get married. And I decided that I was going to leave active duty and go in the reserves so that I could go with him. We could get married and we could go to Hawaii. So as much as I loved the Air Force and everything that I was doing, I really wanted to be married and go to Hawaii. And so I did that. I went in the reserves and I never looked back because the opportunities that unfolded for me as a reservist were much more than I think they ever would have been had I stayed on active duty. When I got to Hawaii, I went into the communications career field. So I went from acquisition, more engineering and design kind of work into operations, you know, more as a kind of in the field or the operational side of the Air Force. I was doing communication. So I was responsible for really a support mission, but it was supporting ops. It was supporting all of the operations required to run the flight line and have all the communications on the flight line 
all the communications to run a base, all the communications that were needed for any kind of field operations. Those are the things that I did. And I did that all over the Pacific, actually. While we were stationed at Hickam, I was on numerous exercises in Korea and Guam, different parts of the Pacific, and just really learning my job as a comm officer and taking on more leadership responsibilities along the way. Four years of that. And then I was kind of keeping up with my colleagues who were, who had met at Hanscom, who were still active duty. And now I'm eight years or so into the Air Force, eight to 10 years in, I'm coming up on major. I'm a reservist. In my off-duty time, <laughs> interestingly, I took a job with the Hilton Hotels Corporation, and I was the director of training for all the Hilton Hotels. That little oh. stint that I had done at ROTC, uh, teaching leadership to cadets, uh, led me into a business consulting job when I was out in Hawaii, and that led me to doing some consulting with the Hilton Corporation, and we were training some of their executives in leadership. And then that led to the Hilton offering me a job to run all of their training programs at their three resorts in the Hawaiian Islands, which is really oh, fun. That's a good So day. I did that. Yeah, I did that for four years while we were there at Hickam. My daughter was born there in Hawaii. About the time it was time for us to think about moving to a new assignment. My husband was up for a PCS. It was time for me and my career path to think about volunteering or applying to go to my mid-level professional military school, Air Command and Staff College. So I applied as a reservist. I was accepted to go to Air Command and Staff College in Montgomery, Alabama. I was one of about 10 reservists that went full-time. My husband was able to get an assignment at the Air War College in Montgomery. So we're all together with our new baby. We spent the next three years in Montgomery. One year I was in school. Two years I was a reserve officer at the Pentagon, but lived in Montgomery while my husband was finishing up his tour. And while we were there in Montgomery, my son was born. So now we have two kids. And I took a job with the MITRE Corporation that had a site there in Montgomery and was doing a lot of engineering work at one of the software factories there, east of town at a place called uh, Gunter Air Force Base. So, and my reserve job was at the Pentagon. And so I would travel back and forth and we just made it work. Then that led to actually my husband retiring. He retired after that assignment. He had 22 years in at that time. We decided to come back to New England. We bought a house. And I just kept going. I stayed in the reserves. I stayed with MITRE for 15 years. I did reserve duty in Europe and I did reserve duty in, down at Barksdale. Yeah, Barksdale, Louisiana, supporting at the time, the Air Force was trying to figure out about starting an Air Force Cyber Command. And so I was on the ground floor of thinking through how we were going to do that and what cyber operations would look like. I had an opportunity to go to Europe. And I worked at NATO for four years in Den Haag in Holland. Mm -hmm. And my job there was to work command and control systems and coordinate interfaces and interactions between U.S. command and control and NATO command and control. The fact that I had an engineering degree and 
I understood about how these command and control systems were built because I worked for MITRE was a big help in that role. In fact, I found that throughout my career, my engineering background and the different jobs that I did always complemented each other. You know, one thing always led to another. And when the Air Force needed some new ideas or new areas that it was exploring, my ability to sort of raise my hand and my willingness to try it out and to go to a new assignment in a different location, I think allowed me to expand my repertoire and create opportunities for myself that I wouldn't have otherwise created. Yeah. Which is really how I ended up back down at Barksdale. Again, when the Air Force was looking to figure out, are we going to have a cyber command? How are we going to figure out how to defend ourselves from cyber attack? And they needed people who would go down to Barksdale for weeks on end and create this new command. I was one of a small team that was able to do that. Meanwhile, you know, I still have my MITRE job back home and husband and two kids back home. And I just traveled back and forth and tried to make these things work. And at one point, we thought we were going to have a cyber command. There were some issues with some B-52s and nuclear weapons. And we realized that we would have probably a global strike command and not a cyber command which is okay because we really needed to take care of our nuclear surety right. back in the 2000 timeframe. But it was ironic because many of those B-52s and much of that nuclear capability from a B-52 standpoint was emanating out of Barksdale Air Force Base, Yeah, which is ironic that we were just down there. Hmm. But then that took me to helping the Air Force figure out how to integrate cyberspace operations with space operations, which took me out to Colorado Springs in the 2010 timeframe. That then led to the standup of 24th Air Force, which then became 16th Air Force, the first numbered Air Force, the first military operation focused on cyber operations, was really a strong contributor to the standup of U.S. Cyber Command back in the day. And then that led me to thinking about potentially retiring, but one job just led to another and the Air Force asked me to come on full-time orders and be the first Air Force Chief Data Officer because I had had a background in not just networks, but computing systems and applications and data. I'd worked in industry, both for MITRE and then as an independent consultant for four or five years in New England. I came on as the Air Force Chief Data Officer. I did that job for two years, helped the Air Force figure out how to make data more accessible and useful across all of its mission areas. And one of the mission areas that was critical for the use of data, still is today, is space mission area. General Raymond asked me to come out, back out to Colorado Springs and help him lead his data initiatives for space. I did that. Moved out to Colorado Springs for a couple of years. Again, my family stayed back home in New England. I traveled back and forth and helped the Air Force ultimately stand up the Space Force. And I became the Space Force first chief technology and innovation officer, responsible not just for data and infrastructure for the Space Force, but also all of the technology, all of the S&T, all of the innovation activities in the Space Force, which was really the pinnacle of my career. And I finished that job this past year, 2021. It was time for me to retire after 35 total years 
in service, 27 as a reservist. And just to clarify the introduction there, JR, I actually retired out of the Air Force, out of the Air Force Reserves. But my last assignment was with the United States Space Force. So I never transitioned from the Air Force to the Space Force. Ah, okay. But I was certainly a proud plank holder for the stand-up of the Space Force and was proud to retire and be retired by the Chief of Space Operations, General J. Raymond, under the United States Space Force flag, which was really, really cool. All pretty cool. So you had a couple of stints, just so I understand where you were a reservist, you have your civilian job, MITRE, some other things you were doing, non-Air Force. But typically, the reservist is like a few weeks a year, in the weekend a month, that's sort of the classic way it's advertised. But you had some non-traditional reservist stints. It sounds like if you were down in Barksdale and out in Colorado Springs, separated from family, how did that work for you? How did you make it work? Yeah, it was a very unique career. I was what's considered an individual mobilization augmentee, an IMA. And essentially what that means is I was assigned to an active duty unit and I had an active duty boss in each one of my reserve assignments throughout my reserve career. I was never a unit reservist. I was never a traditional, what you would think of, a weekend reservist. So my assignments were always attached to the active duty organization. And there's about 2,000 IMAs in the career field that I'm in, in communications. And we fill in the gap. These are reservists that pick up the slack when the active duty counterpart has to be deployed or away on extended orders or gone away to school, the reservists can step in and pick up the slack, pick up the job. So that's essentially what an IMA does. Now, the fact that I could go on and off orders and spend so much time doing these juicy, interesting kinds of jobs, I owe that to the fact that, well, first of all, my family was very supportive and willing to allow me to take these assignments and continue to progress in my career. And my husband did a great job of taking care of the kids and holding down the home front when there were times when I was away for weeks or months. There would be times when I'd have assignments that took me away for, you know, months and almost up to a year at a time. Now, of course, I would come home every weekend or every other weekend, but it was a rough time there for a period of of time. A lot of people, I mean, whether you're obviously you're in a military environment, people in just a regular private sector job consider commuting. I think people underestimate how hard it is to do that, to be on a plane, either away from your family and going back to them on an irregular basis or seeing them on the weekends and getting on a plane on a Monday morning or even a Sunday night and coming back on Thursday night or Friday and just doing that again and again and again. It's a tough existence. I credit you for figuring out a way to make that work with your husband and the kids and work and all of that. Yeah. It takes a lot of communication and a lot of coordination and a lot of patience, but yeah, we made it work. And then my bosses, you know, my civilians, well, I have to also give a lot of credit to MITRE. MITRE was very flexible and supportive. You know, MITRE is very supportive of the reserves in general. There are a lot of reservists that work for MITRE. And so they would give me time off to be able to do my reserve duty. And then there were times when I took a leave of absence for on a couple of different occasions from MITRE when I knew I had to be gone for extended yeah. periods of time that went beyond the normal you know, military time off. Yeah. 
So those two factors, I think, really helped contribute to my ability to serve. Yeah. So you had kind of an interesting mix of military time, time in academia. We haven't gotten to your later time at Harvard, but I know you also worked at Harvard for a while. In addition to your teaching work at MIT when you were an ROTC instructor, MITRE, for those who don't know, it is a government-focused research institution supporting the military and other forms of the U.S. government. So there's a very close tie there, but it is a private sector organization. And then there's true private sector, what you were doing at Hilton, for example. You had a lot of different environments. How do you kind of compare and contrast what it was like to work and to lead in those different environments? What's similar, what's different? The fact that I had all of those different experiences was a great benefit to me. Because here again, the diversity of environments and problem sets that I got to work on and people that I got to work with, I think allowed me to see things in different ways. I could bring new ideas into any environment that I was in because I'd come from something different. And so that was, I think, very helpful. At the same time, there's a lot of patterns that you see in any organization. While you can appreciate the diversity and you can appreciate the differentness of different environments and areas that you work, you also tend to see similar sort of patterns. And so therefore you can apply approaches in unique ways, but also you can sort of understand maybe how things could be unfolding because you've seen a little bit similar to that before, if that makes any sense. I always found that it was a benefit to me to have many different activities going on and be able to float in and out of these different environments. I never felt too constrained by one environment or the other. And I always felt like I could contribute something of value because of where I had been before. And that was very, very beneficial. But I also think that my leadership experiences in the military were unsurpassed. And it really allowed me to apply leadership in my civilian career in ways that is not necessarily cultivated as much or as early on in individuals' career. As I mentioned, I was given a lot of leadership responsibilities very early on in my military career. And then I went on to lead large groups and squadrons and teams of folks throughout my military career. And I could always bring those experiences into my civilian job and lead in ways that I would take advantage of leadership opportunities without those leadership opportunities necessarily being formally defined because I was aware of the role that I could step into. And so I think that many organizations in a civilian environment don't necessarily cultivate their leaders as well as they could and miss an opportunity, especially early on, to build leaders. Now, organizations have gotten much better at this over the years. Leadership development has progressed significantly in the last 20 to 30 years. It is a big part of many organizations today from day one when individuals come into the organization. But it wasn't so much that way when I was coming up. And so I felt very fortunate that my military leadership experiences had given me insight and inspiration to step into leadership roles when I saw them in my civilian capacity. And that allowed me, I think, to excel there as well. Yeah. One of the questions I like to ask people is, 
how intentional and how opportunistic were you about your career? I mean, just listening to the conversation, there's definitely been a lot of, sounds like opportunism in your case. Very much so. I often say that my career was very much unscripted. (laughs) I was fortunate to have opportunities put in front of me. And I had the willingness and this, again, support of my family to take advantage of those opportunities. And one opportunity just led to another. Certainly, I looked for the opportunities that I thought I could maximize my impact or where I could make a difference, but it really was very much unscripted. I mean, I went for the jobs that not only where I thought I could make an impact, but the ones that I thought I would enjoy, that would be fun, that I could really learn something new and different. I didn't want to do the job just because it seemed like the right next job to do. In fact, I never did. I went after the jobs that I found interesting. In fact, I'll never forget when I went to take the job in Europe and work at NATO, I had just come out of the next level of professional military education. I had gone to my professional military education full-time twice in my career. One is a mid-career major down in Montgomery. And then I actually went away for a year down to Washington, D.C. for my senior service school, senior level military education. Again, sort of keeping in line with what I thought I was important to do and what I wanted to do in my career in terms of my educational background and achievements. It turned out that I was very successful in that senior level school. I graduated the top of my class, like the top of the class. (laughs) And it was mainly because I was away. It was almost like I was back in college. You were geobatching it, you know? Yeah. Very focused, just going to class, having a good time and playing sports and doing everything that came my way. And I ended up graduating at the top of the class. Well, the job that I wanted to do after that was go to Europe. And I'll never forget, one of my mentors called me up and said, are you sure you want to take this job in Europe? I said, yes, I want to take the job in Europe. I said, why do you want to take the job in Europe? I said, because I've never been to Europe. This is going to be a great opportunity for me to go to Europe. I've been just about everywhere else in the world, but I've not yet done a job in Europe. And I really want to make a difference here. And I really want to work with NATO. And so I'm going to do it. And I don't think my mentor at the time thought that that was the next best job for me, particularly given that I had graduated the top of my class. But I did it anyway. And I had a blast. And then that job led to one thing after another. And my career turned out okay. So (laughs) I feel like my career was intentional in the sense that I knew there were certain things that would certainly keep me competitive at the next level. But for the most part, it was opportunistic in that I went for the jobs that I thought I could make the most impact in and that I thought would be the most fun. Yeah. And the back and forth you had with your mentors, you're describing it it's great to have mentors, right? Very helpful. And to have those sources of input about what to do in your career, but at the same time, it's your career and you're going to make the decisions that you feel like are right for you. And that's, I think where people get a little bit uncomfortable. Sometimes they do things because other people tell them that they should not necessarily because they really feel they should or want to. That's right. Yeah. 
And, you know, I had a lot of passion for my job in, in Europe, so much so that I took my children with me. They were very little at the time, and I had just been away for a year going to school. So when I graduated, I decided I was going to go over to Europe for the summer to get acclimated in the new job. They would know me. I would know them. I knew I would have to go back to work for MITRE, so I wouldn't be able to go to Europe and live in Europe for an extended period of time. But I wanted to go for the summer. And I convinced my husband to let me take the kids since I'd been away from them for a year. And they were at the time six six and four. And we made it work. I put them in daycare during the day and I worked during the day and picked them up in the evening and we toured around. We went to Heidelberg. We went to Paris for a weekend and we just had a blast. And it was, I think, four weeks of their life that they'll never forget. They still talk about it today. Yeah. That's a great, great experience. You know, obviously having been an expat, my kids weren't with us, they were already grown at that point, but we certainly have a lot of friends who have had kids here and the kids, they just benefit from that international experience. It gives you a different worldview than just growing up in one place or in one country all through your childhood. So it's great that your kids had that chance. When do you feel like you kind of had yourself figured out, like knew enough about yourself to kind of know what you really wanted to do? So I think for most people that doesn't happen right when they're in college or even after they're in college. Oh, oh gosh, no. <laughs> I think I'm still figuring it out. Now I'm <laughs> on to the next phase of life and opportunity and fun. I mean, certainly as I became more senior in my military career, and I'd had a lot of civilian experiences under my belt. As you mentioned, I worked for MITRE. I was a department head. I ran teams of about 200 people there. I left MITRE and started a consulting firm and I worked at Harvard. And while I wasn't directly responsible for large groups of people, I helped accomplish some significant IT strategy changes there at Harvard, which opened up a lot of doors for my business and a lot of other higher ed institutions and businesses in New England. And then as I became a general officer and was handed a lot of responsibilities to run teams and directorates and commands of tens of thousands of people. You start to get really comfortable with your ability to make decisions and to take a lot of information in. And like we were talking about earlier, you've seen enough of these problems come around the bend. They start to look a little bit familiar and you feel pretty good about your ability to address the issue. And actually, the more senior you become, which I was always very pleased to sort of have this realization, that the more senior you become, the more experienced you are, the more confident you are in your ability to solve the problem or make a decision, the more willing you are, should be, to let somebody else do it, to coach and mentor others coming up, to know that this is an opportunity to help others grow and help others learn and help others step outside their comfort zone. So while I've always been one to put myself in new places and new positions that I've never been in before, always willing to stretch myself and try something different and new, I'm also one that is very willing to, when I see something that is very comfortable, very familiar to me, to step back and 
give it to my deputy or make sure that I'm delegating it down and helping others learn how to lead and learn how to grow and guiding and mentoring them and coaching them along the way. You know, I'm sure you had ample opportunities as a senior person in the military to speak to junior people, whether enlisted or officers. What are the big pieces of wisdom that you wanted them to take away from your leadership experience? Yeah. Never turn down an opportunity that's in front of you. Do the best job that you can do. You'll never have all the information that you'll want. Make the best decision you can with the information that you have and move on. When you get more information, make a new decision. Don't get stuck in paralysis, but be willing to make decisions and move forward. Be willing to try new things. Don't be afraid to fail. Don't be afraid to stretch yourself. Don't be afraid to try something that you've never tried before. Recognize that everything that you've done and everything that you bring to the table adds value. So speak up. Don't worry about being the only young person in the room or the only female in the room or the only whatever in the room. Right. Recognize that you're the only you in the room and nobody else in that room at that table sees things exactly the way you do. So if you see something, because your experience, your insight gives you the ability to offer something of value, bring it forward because we need that. We need to hear that and be confident, be confident in what you have to offer and then seek to learn and take insight from others so that you can grow and build upon every single experience that you have. Speaking of growth, what was a consistent strength for you through the course of your career to date? What's an area that you really worked on developing and how did you do that? Well, there's been several. I would say that, you know, one of the areas that I would always spend time and think about and be willing to volunteer at was public speaking. I think it's important to be able to put your thoughts together in front of a group. It's important to be able to engage an audience. It's important to be able to convey a meaningful set of points and to bring a room alive and have some interesting things to talk about. So I would always raise my hand whenever there was a public speaking opportunity. I still do that today. I still look for those opportunities to share my thoughts or put together a talk or dive into a topic because I think it's really important to be able to convey and communicate at a level of understanding and impact. So that's one for sure. I would say another one is just constantly wanting to be able to lead and engage people in a direct and impactful and personable way, meeting people where they are, engaging people in a way that helps them and know that you're there, that you're authentic with them where they are and what they're trying to do and what we're trying to do together in the mission. So continuously thinking about driving the organization forward and doing it in a way that is a direct engagement with people on your team. Oftentimes, I think it's easy to get very focused and lost in your own set of goals and objectives, forgetting that there's a whole group of people that are here trying to do this with us. And each one of them is trying to make a difference. And we've got to be able to engage each other in the process. And I still do it today. 
still very much honing my ability to engage people and engage the team and define the vision and move things forward in a personable way where everybody can get there together. So what's next for you in your post-military life? Yeah, well, I've been doing a lot of independent consulting since I retired, which has been a lot of fun. I work with a lot of companies, large, medium, and small. I consult on topics related to software development and innovation and how do you bring innovation into the government, consult in the areas of data and analytics on how do we think about better ways to use our data. I also, obviously, because of my most recent position in the Air Force supporting the Space Force, I spent a lot of time talking about space and space operations and what the space community really needs and how space is trying to innovate and the criticality that we have to defend our assets and our systems in space and how do we bring technology to bear to do that. So I'm enjoying all of that quite a bit. Good. I'm spending a lot more time at home, which has been great. It's long overdue. Given the amount of time that you've been away over the years, it's got to be nice to have a home base, a clear home base. Absolutely. Yeah. Any particular business books or career books or podcasts that you read or listened to that you think are particularly good? This is the thing that I need to start doing more of is getting back to reading and picking up a lot more of those great business books and leadership books that I've not been able to get to over the years. But yeah, that's what I'm looking forward to. Yeah. Good to put some fiction in there too, though. You know, not to make it all nonfiction. Great. Any final thoughts you want to share that we haven't covered? I'll tell you, our careers go by so fast. I think the parting thought that I would give here is to make the most out of every single day that you've got, to really lean in in your jobs, try big, bold things, take on those big, bold new ideas and engage each other in the process because we only get these things done together and to really have a lot of fun. Take advantage of all those opportunities as we talked about before and really do the things that matter the most to you. Have passion in what you do. Do the things that you're going to be passionate about and everything else will fall into place. Yeah, there's a lot of truth to that. So awesome. On that note, we'll wrap. Kim, thank you. I appreciate it. Lots of great advice that you've provided and guidance through the course of our conversation. So thank you again for being victim number two in my fledgling career-focused podcast. Just going back to what we're up to in general. If you're ready to take control of your career, you can visit pathwise.io. And if you want more regular insights, we have a newsletter that you can sign up for on the website, or you can subscribe to follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook. Kim, thank you and have a good rest of your day. Thanks, JR. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at Pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.